and we are back. Thank you. Well, I'm back. It's I gotta I gotta be honest with you, Chase. It's um, you know, it's, I I don't like missing the dots, man. I feel like I'm missing out on, you know, the journey, if you will. And you're probably sitting there going, "Well, I like it when you miss the dots." Yeah. Well, welcome back to the journey. <laughs> okay, man. So getting back into it today. Um, I don't know. Did we hit on any hot topics yesterday that I missed? I, I was indisposed for mo- most of the day as well as Monday. Uh, I was not traveling. Well, I don't even know. What was I? I just had meetings and stuff. I, I, I slept since then, but I, I want to say <laughs> the, the big thing I hit on was a bunch of the uh, small business survey uh, numbers that came out yesterday. So it was very data heavy on that. How'd they look? I didn't see those. Uh, so like the, the kind of like lead number was a, was a little weak, but what was more important to me was some of the credit stuff. Credit conditions were like melting hard. The rates small businesses are saying they're paying for short-term financing is ripping. Um, and the ability to access credit is a problem. So from a credit standpoint, it was ugly. Um, everything else was kind of, I don't know, like not that exciting more or less. I think the biggest, and, and we'll get into the dots. So if you got, well, yeah, I mean, we can summarize that now. NASDAQ finished up. We had markets mildly up because why not? Um, well, rates pulled back a little bit more today. So I guess that kind of makes sense. Although it is kind of amazing to me that, um, (laughs) you still see that dynamic rates go up and they hit the market, but they don't hit it as hard as rates going down. Help it. Of course. Right. Um, it's pretty amazing. Anyway, NASDAQ up 96 points or 0.71% on the day. Uh, it's still we're just still sitting right on that line that we've been watching on the Nasdaq, aren't we? Yeah, there's kind of a downtrend line specifically on QQQ that like we we tested kind of the last couple of days, and it's just kind of fighting with it at the moment. So, I mean, it, this whole week is set up for inflation tomorrow, and if inflation is is a big surprise either way, that that is what will drive markets for for sure. It is still unbelievable though, because I still feel like this is a market that has still got animal spirits ripping, and it's, I've just, I, it really, I, the only thing I can really chalk it up to is the record retail involvement in the market, because it's just fascinating to see. We were talking about this pretty much, you know, for the last hour and a half. Again, it's not that everything is horrible. You know, we're, we're not the guys, and we've said this over and over and over. We're not the guys that think we're on the edge of some giant economic morass and everything's about ready to go. Having said that, we're also not the, looking at looking at the action and stocks and looking at all the and it just it is a head scratcher like just the the bullishness in the price action versus what you're seeing underlying i've just never personally seen anything like it in yeah. my career yeah like i mean at the end of the day whenever whenever the market gets to price out the fed doing any more they're just going to celebrate so that at the end of the day that's what we're in we're in the the yay no more cuts celebration mode which once that's completely priced out, that then you can start looking for bad news to become possible bad news. No, and I'm with you, and I get all that on an intellectual level, but I'm also old enough to remember the last downturn, and I remember to, the, all the scares in between then. And and what you typically see, or what I remember seeing, is when you thought the Fed was done, and the Fed was speaking reassuringly. I'm thinking about the early, you know, first half of '08. Um, you know, it would certainly impact markets, but I feel like markets attitude would be, okay, there's no need to panic. Let's see what happens. You know, where now it's like, 
if there's any kind of neutral news out of the Fed, it's like, oh my God, buy stocks, hurry up, you know, Mm -hmm. buy them before there aren't any left. And it's just that dynamic is just that switch that I've seen happen in my own career is just incredible to me. Yeah, I mean, Pavlov's dog definitely, definitely wants to buy. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. But in addition to animal spirits, as we've also talked about in the last half, hour and a half is is machine spirits like at the end of the day all the all the passive flows they just want more yeah no and that's and that's uh like you were talking about um and it's why you guys are going to hear us talk about technicals so much i am a fundamental guy i'm a value guy always have been okay but you also need to recognize when you're in a market that doesn't care yeah, I'm neither, so we're that's what makes us uh, work together. Yeah, no, it helps, and that and that's one of the reasons why I hired you is have that tech, you know, to have that technical part of it. But um, this is a video game at this point; it really is, and it it's not a video game in the sense that it means nothing. It's just markets are reflecting a completely different reality than most people think they are, right? It, it this this market has become, and I've, I I used this term years ago. I'm I'm probably not the only one that's used it. I know, you know, you, you've said exactly the same thing in different words, but, um, I think the biggest shift that has happened to this market since 08, 09, and with all this unprecedented central bank intervention is, and this has always been true to a certain extent, but I, there were other drivers. This, these markets have truly become liquidity gauges. Yeah. That's what they are, right? You see the market going up. People are like, oh, that's because good things are happening. Nope. Just means more liquidity is flowing into the market. Market going down, liquidity is coming out. It's all that matters. They they don't care about fundamentals. <laughs> In fact, whether to say markets don't, I guess it's investors don't, uh, which makes sense. I mean, you fifteen year longest bull market of all time. Everybody, you literally have a generation of people that think every drop in the market. And, and it re, uh, re, literally a full generation. Every drop in the market is just a buying opportunity, and that's value investing. Right, like you don't need to look at fundamentals. You don't need to look at anything. Just buy it, and until it breaks, they're right. You know, like I, I was having this argument with a couple of clients, not argument, but this discussion, and they're like, "Zach, what do you?" And I go, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" I go, "What leads you to believe anything that matters?" They're like, "Well, it always matters in the end." And I go, it "Hasn't for fifteen years, right?" And there's no sign of it stopping, which is the most incredible to me. Right in this environment, I just I'm blown away by it. But anyway, to finish it off, so Dow basically flat on the day, up point one nine, up sixty five points. S and P up point four three, eighteen point seven points. Russell negative because it doesn't have enough tech apparently. Uh, crude oil got smacked again today. We're getting pressing down back against the eighty. Uh, you want to talk about that? We, we were talking about yeah. that earlier. This move in crude, I find funny. You are, the one thing that still moves, though, on a fundamental basis, f- fundamental, just because even that seems to have negative bias to it, is commodities. Exactly. Um, but they seem to have always downward bias to them. Like when when in def- when you don't know what to do, right? If you're fifty fifty, just short them, because that seems to be the way the market behaves. Um, but like you pointed out, that works until it doesn't, and then. Those are the great value trades is when these, but it's still, it, it, it still is a, to me, it's still proof of completely dysfunctional markets, meaning it, they beat these things up that actually have real value, that have real cash flow to a point like you were pointing out your call on BTU, which was phenomenal. 
Um, we made a killing on that, but they push them down to such a point where it's ridiculous. Exactly. Right? Yeah. I mean, literally where you're just sitting there, okay, this is like, this is literally like buying a hundred dollar bill for a buck 50. Yep. And then that's kind of the only real value investing we've seen work. It's deep cyclical commodity stuff and, and, and at an inflection point where it's nothing when it comes to value is, is kind of what I've found for the last few years. Going back to oil, something um, in, in your absence the last couple of days that I touched on that I want to kind of re reaffirm was, so I talked about this Monday, and that was whenever you have a big event like we ha have going on um, in Israel right now, you, you get this thing where you get a, a bunch of hot takes on you know CNBC and on Twitter, all where everyone basically gets super fired up about it. And there's always like one dominant trade narrative that comes into it. And this time, of course, it was buy oil because there's a war in the Middle East. Oil is <laughs> going to go to the moon. I have this framework. I call it F1T3. And that's fade the first, trade the third. That means fade the first order effect. Either, either you short it or you just leave it alone. And then trade the third. So you look for like, okay, what will actually happen down the line in a month or two that no one's going to be thinking about right now? You know, the effect of the effects of this thing. And when it comes to the first one, for whatever reason, it just usually doesn't work. So sure enough, that was two days ago. Oil's down three percent since, even though everyone was sure oil's going to go to the moon because of the because of the war. Um, and I, I still think I, I said Monday, like I I think buying Israeli stocks is going to be probably the the trade you actually want to be in, and that's the one that no one seems to talk about or want to be in right now. But they're going to have to uh, create a bunch of money and spend a bunch of money. Um, I, I just think that's going to help their their equity market go up a lot. They're going to have a bunch of inflation because of it, and that's going to be great well, when, for the stock market. And they have a unified government for the first time in a while. Well, when are you, when are you going to tell me to pull the trigger on Tiva Pharmaceuticals then? Yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about. but It's a big Israeli <laughs> generic pharmaceutical company. I, I avoid You want to know why I know it? Yes. I, I know it because it has been very, very cheap and pays an attractive dividend. <laughs> it's come up on my value screens for years. I'm sure it is in the country ETFs, and that's what I was thinking about. So, oh, what is that? What what do, is there? So, the, so Israel has has at least two of them that I know of. Um, the tickers are EIS and ISRA. EIS is actually maybe big enough for us to put a little bit in, but the the other one's like real small. So, like, hey, if you're retail and you did your own homework and you decided this was a great idea and you talked to some professional and they said it was a good idea, fine. But um, as a guy that had that, so my my. My family lineage is Lebanese Jews, and uh, <clears throat> and we we converted to Catholicism when people moved here. So this is not an anti-Semitic comment. I just think whoever invented that ETF really missed out. They whiffed on it. <laughs> Jew, you just J E W. I'm sure that would have went over great. That, I mean, but no. But as a guy whose last name's Abraham, who's from a Jewish lineage, I mean, I'd be all over that. I would love to open up the account <laughs> and just see Jew as one of the holdings. <laughs> that's what i mean that and again if you heard me just say that i come from a jewish lineage my last name is abraham okay i'm not a practicing jew i'm just you know i grew up in a very pro-israeli pro-jew family because that's where you know we that's where we come from i feel um, like that's a kosher etf it was absolutely it's a kosher etf which by the way goes with my favorite hot dog the hebrew national nice they're phenomenal hot dogs if you haven't tried a hebrew national do yourself a favor. I'll do that. I'm a hot dog connoisseur. It's, well, you would love them. And they've got two. You've got the big old Hebrew national like ballpark dog. And then they have the skinnier like tight skinned dogs. You don't like those? No, you got to go big. Go big, go home. You just put three of them on one bun, brother. And that's 
that I don't understand the, the concept well, of that one. I can have one giant one. Well, we got a lot to teach you, kid. You haven't been here. <laughs> We're for surface a area to get the burn marks, I guess. <laughs> anyway, okay. So, um, what what are we seeing? Uh, let's see. You know the oh the other thing I was going to ask you. Um, do you think there's any cre- now again supply and demand? commodities it's almost impossible to to divorce them from supply and demand and market dynamics uh and fundamental dynamics you can for a little while right but they're going to bust loose um what one of the things that i'm what do you think one of the things that contributes to oil getting smacked down as hard as i mean again it's not down 25 percent. i'm not saying like smack down obliterated but pretty pretty good downside move here in a very short period of time um do you think that's part of just the fact that the queues are rallying again no i I don't think so i I don't for the most part i don't think oil cares um now the queues might care about oil going down a little but no just oil flows or just just investor flows right the queues start going everybody every money manager you and i both know this every single money manager no matter what he says he's in and i know because i'm like this (laughs) You're watching the queues every day because you're scared to death of them just ripping up for no reason like sure. they have for 15 straight years. Yeah, definitely. I, we talked about this earlier. Like I, I can honestly say like I understand why we had had to pull back on oil because everyone bought it and it just everyone it went straight up and everyone bought it. That when that happens, you got to go back down. Um, we both expect you know some demand destruction, and I think EIA or somebody today or IAE came out. And kind of downgraded their demand forecast a little bit for the rest of the year and next year. I want to say, which which EIA make, EIA which, which makes makes sense, right? Um, but but if you look at Gas Buddy, they're showing demand is still being pretty robust right now. So the fact that gasoline has just had giant builds all of a sudden, I I'm struggling to really put that put the pieces together on that. It's probably going to get at least partially revised out, like we talked about with Josh Young. But I mean, I, I still like oil, but you know, thankfully we, we hedged some of our longs with massive luck just in time, but I still like it. Just don't like it yet. And I especially don't like it because everyone is all fired up about it because just because there's a conflict in the Middle East, they think that means oil go up whenever that's just not the case. Yeah. Well, and I don't really understand where people, it, it, to me, I put that in the exact same category as people freaking out about the government shutdown. Right where I'm just like, guys, this has happened so many times. This is not a tradable event. It's not a material event as far as the economy is concerned. Now, only the drag. If it happens and it drags on for like three weeks, then well, it's real. But yeah, well, I mean, so the the two countries you have in conflict right now are Palestine and Israel. What what is the global oil pr- percentage of oil production coming out of those? Two? Well, close to nothing. Close to nothing. It only matters if you bring Iran in. I was just gonna which, say. Uh, I mean, j- even j- just today, U.S. intelligence said, "Hey, like." Not only do we don't not think they had anything to do with it, but we our intelligence shows they were surprised by it. Like their key players in Iran were surprised by it. So to me, like I know there's there was the Wall Street Journal article tying them, and then everyone that loves conspiracies wants to believe they're definitely involved, or anyone that doesn't like Iran. But when Israel, the U.S., and Iran all have the same story of like, look, they're jerks and they they're loving this and they support them a lot, but they had no, no operational you know, role here. Like oh, that's Occam's razor is probably true. Yeah. Even, I, even if it isn't, that does, I mean, that still doesn't mean we're going to like shut their oil down. And I don't know if you saw, but Janet Yellen uh, absurdly came out and said that they have never let up on, on sanctions uh, enforcement against Iran, even though they're, you know, their production and their exports have skyrocketed. 
She tried to pretend like the U.S. had not backed off that at all, which is just patently absurd. I don't think it's absurd. I think it's just a lie. It is definitely a lie, which I, I'm pretty sure some U.S. like policymakers in the past year have pretty much made it clear. Like, yeah, OK, sure. Wink and nod. Like we're, we're letting them do more because they're giving us some stuff. It's just it's an unofficial deal because you can't. They're and not going to sign a deal because we're they're afraid the next president will undo it. And to be fair to her, she's not a member of the Fed anymore. It's just amazing to me how political she is. That's her hey, job, though. She's hey, a cabinet. No, no, member, I get it. Know? I get it. I get it. I just she's not she's just not good at it. No, no. It's I mean, I literally feel you know what I you know what I feel you know what it feels like to me. It feels like to me when my thirteen year old daughter, who I love with all of my heart, comes down, gives me a hug. How are you, daddy? I sit there and I'm like, what do you want? Yeah. You know, and I've got a great, listen, I've got a great relationship with my daughter. We pal around all the time. But I just know. know, yeah, when she, when it's too nice, I'm sitting there going out of nowhere. I'm like. But maybe that means Janet's redeemable. The fact that she's not a great liar like the rest of them. Well, she's also like 75, which means I'd hope that her skill, like, you know, her, her, her ability to massage the situation at the corners or the edges, you know, you'd think there'd be a little more tact. No involved i mean it's it's pretty like you and i were talking about um and and the dots is probably not the right place to get into this but but here we go yeah here we go <laughs> so much for the 12 to 15 minute promise um it w when we were really going over and in you've been you've been talking about this all year to your credit and then we talked to the again with steve Mirren. he echoed those sentiments but <clears throat> um it, it really appears to me, looking at the way that the Treasury has managed the issuance of bonds and, you know, the managing of the TGA, which is the Treasury uh, – what does it stand for? General account. General account, yeah. Which for you guys, it, it it is basically the savings account for the U.S. government, right? It's where they pay stuff out of and, you know, they sell bonds. Whenever they sell a bond, money goes into the TGA, Um I guess it's probably not – it's more like a, more like a checking account yeah. than a savings account, yeah. right? Um, it really looks to me like – and it was kind of bizarre when you were looking at it because it looked to me like the way that they were managing the TGA was almost undercutting monetary policy. It, 100%. Not even just the TGA but just uh, you know, debt issuance in general has 100% undercut the, the, the Fed. I mean whenever you're keeping duration back and just stuffing everyone with, with – you know, two years and below, like you're, you, you keep a lot of consequences from hitting the market. Um, which like we we keep talking about, if no one's paying the rate, it doesn't matter what the rate is. And the fed couldn't control that. Like they, they can't make everyone refi into, into floating rate debt or one year debt or anything. So the fact that everyone was termed out meant the fed, the feds impact is going to be smaller. So they really needed to lean on the treasury to go, you know, push a bunch of duration on the market to kind of get it in line and, they just until very very recently they didn't do that, and as we have seen very recently, it really started to matter when they did. I, it really is amazing, uh, you know. I mean, I believe that the Federal Reserve and the Treasury and politicians in general have always cared about the stock market more than they've let on. It, it is remarkable to me, though, how much focus seems to you and I were talking. Right. Like I it is so perplexing for me that these guys were so blown away. First of all, they were so late to the inflation party. And then they thought they could deal with it solely through 
the extraordinarily blunt instrument that is interest rate policy. And yet at the same time, where did quantitative easing come from? It came from the fact that they were not getting the quote unquote wealth effect, right? Think of it as inflationary impacts from low interest rates that they thought they would get. So what did they start doing? Quantitative easing or liquidity injections. So then when you see inflation finally running out of control, and you and I were pounding the table on this a year and a half ago, sitting there saying, wait a second, this is a liquidity-driven bubble by definition. Pull money out of the system. Why are you jacking rates this high in a system that's this indebted? That's what I don't get. I don't think they're that dumb. They're not, but you're right. It is it is weird. They treat it like a one-way tool instead of a two-way tool. And right. It's, it's, it is bizarre. Well, you and I from the very beginning, I from the very beginning thought that they would lean lighter on rates because of all of the dislocations and problems that it can cause and that they would just pull the plug and let liquidity drain. I will say, so in today's um, minutes from the, uh, the September FOMC meeting, they explicitly said that they uh, very well may keep running QT after they start cutting rates. So they were... I, from that standpoint, it makes it feel like, okay, they're starting to get it a little bit here. They'll, they'll understand like, Hey, we got to get rates back down or we'll blow up, you know, giant chunks of private equity and, and I, yeah. small businesses. The sequencing of it though, doesn't even make sense. No, right. Of like, course. But, but at least, at least they're doing that because in the past they've always linked QE or QT to the rate cutting and they made it, they had this absurd notion they had to go in order. I think they've abandoned the go in order part. Well, I know, but 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 go in order would would say that they should get quantitative tighten before they lean on rates. Well, I mean, I, I I won't say I wouldn't say that. So for me, you lean on it, sure, like get it started and everything, but but they still need to get rates up to two or three. But that's for me personally, I would have left them at three. Like I wouldn't have gone to five and a half. I would have left them at three, and I would have torqued, you know, the. More even more than the QT, I would have torqued the issuance to like punish the market with the, with the long end to you know smash animal spirits. Yeah, I yeah, I just I don't. And and again, when I say I don't get it, I'm not saying that I think that they were on a mission to do something untoward or fix markets no, or a yeah. conspiracy. I just once again with Federal Reserve, you put these academics in a room and the stuff they come up with, and it's predictable. For instance. I want to harken back to that. I specifically remember an interview you and I did before you started here full time about a year and a half ago, where we were. I mean, as always, I was probably more animated and louder and more upset than you were. Um, <laughs> as always, yes. <laughs> as always, come on, uh, that's true. Um, but we we were just kicking and or I was kicking and screaming, going, "This is the dumbest thing I have ever seen." You're relying solely on rates. This isn't a rate-driven issue. This is a liquidity-driven issue. Pull the plug and let the bloody thing drain. Yeah. And and we were saying it back then, just going, look, you're gonna what you're gonna do by doing this is the liquidity is gonna keep sloshing around. The problem's gonna get even more acute, right? Going forward, and you're gonna have more problems on different levels. And and that and that's where we're at now. Yeah. And they think they have this adequate reserve level figured out where. You know, there's a spot on bank reserves where they're pretty sure if they go past that, they'll break, they'll like truly snap something. But like they're 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 pretty far above it right now. So to me, 
with everything going on, why don't you go get close to it and then manage it, just manage it at that point. Just QT everyone's face off down to that level and then try to get, then try to like. Well, hey, but here's the other thing. What do bank reserves even mean anymore? Right. Well, I mean, they've got all of these banks. How have, they conduct monetary policy. And this is kind of the underpinning of everything. No, I get it. I get it. But the bank's reserves are whatever the Fed says they are. I mean, they, they, they stand implicitly behind those Wall Street banks, the big ones, the first tier, the bulge, the bulge bracket banks. Right. They, they can't fold up anymore. Those have effectively become GSEs, government sponsored entities. I mean, right. Yeah, I mean, I, of course they are. Yeah. yeah. So why the why in the hell are you worried about bank reserves? I mean, you, you just throw more on the balance sheet whenever you want to. That's what you but, do anyway. Right, but that's just undoing the QT that you want to do. So, like, you can't – I don't think there's any point in going, like, all the way to just snapping something and then, and then you know, doing what they just did with the banks and ring-fencing it and trying to put it back together because then you'll get another rip in the market that's counterproductive. No, I agree, but, and I agree with you 100%. But I'm just saying th- this is the stupidity of the way that these people run things, meaning – you wouldn't have even had to do this Silicon Valley Bank bailout, the the TBT app or PDP or what, what it's called. What's it called? The the about BTFD. Yeah, BTFD. Yeah, yeah. Um, the bank term funding. Yeah. Yep. Um, but you wouldn't have even had to do that if you would have stopped at three at three and a half. Exactly. Right. Like they've created so many other issues when they could have accomplished all of this stuff by do going up to three to three and a half and then draining the liquidity. Yeah, and they, and they. Yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, and this this is usually the way it happens. It's easy to look at the banks and be like, "What idiots!" But I think usually, a lot of regulatory stuff, the Fed like kind of got them there. Now, and the Fed walks away and acts like they had nothing to do with it. But usually, you know, I mean, the amount of deposits they made them take because you know the other banks were too big and they couldn't take them. So like, you take all these little banks and you're like, "Hey, you got to take all, like a bajillion deposits." You, we printed a bunch of money. We sent everyone stimmy checks. We sent everyone uh, PPP. So all of a sudden, there's a bajillion new deposits. Hey, little bank, I need you to take some of those. And little bank doesn't know what to do with them. So like, uh, I don't know, buy some treasuries because the Fed said they're going to keep rates low. And the next thing you know, they didn't keep rates low. And then you blow up your bank and the Fed's like, what the hell are you guys doing? Like, what do you mean what were you doing? You, you made us take a bunch of deposits and then you jacked rates up after you said you wouldn't. Like, yeah, no, that's a classic example. But it, and, and again, I'm with you at the same time. Okay. I, the, <laughs> and I gave these guys way too much credit. When the bank problem started floating around, my first reaction was, you gotta be kidding me. You guys didn't, you didn't listen to the Fed say we're coming off, inflation is running out of control, and you didn't look at that massive pile of duration you've got at, you know, trading at near record low rates and think to yourself, Maybe boy, might want to hedge that risk a little bit. <laughs> I, that it still is amazing to me. It, 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 look, it's not even on, it's nowhere close to the same scale. So I'm not, I'm not comparing it, but in a lot of ways, it's even dumber to me than what happened in 0809. Cause literally the fed said we're raising rates. Yeah. But, but to be fair, they, they thought it'd be a little at a time. I still remember Neil Kashkari when, whenever people were like, Hey, inflation is getting bad. And, and he was like, all these, all these stories about runaway inflation are just ghost stories. Like he was pushing back so hard at the thought of inflation actually being high. And the whole Fed was. I mean, they were doing forward guidance. They were like, we're not raising rates for years. Neil, like, Neil Kashkari is going to go down in the Hall of Fame at being wrong. He is so good at being wrong. Yeah, now he's super hawkish, so that's fun. He's super. He's super. After saying inflation was a ghost story, now he's talking about how it's horrible. Yeah, which is – that's why I'm looking 
for a recession here in the next <laughs> six months. Because Neil Kashkari, guys, you heard it here first. Yeah, the Neil, the Neil Kramer. You know, call it like Namer or something like that. A new ETF. I call him, call him Xerxes because he looks like him. But. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, he does, especially in the movie Three Hundred. Exactly. Yeah, he looks like a dead ringer. All right. Well, we've gone way over today. I just had to get a fill in. I feel like I missed you guys, man, the last two days. The dots were missing from my life. So anyway, glad to be back. As always, guys, this is part of the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Have another great interview coming up this Friday that you're not going to want to miss. We got a good slate of interviews, actually, several coming up. Anyway, um, and... I got to talk to this guy because I don't know how we do it, but I've got an interview I'm doing for another podcast that's coming up. Maybe we can air that somehow on ours. Anyway, uh, but yeah, that's it for today. We'll keep an eye out. What do we got coming up on the docket tomorrow? Anything important? Yeah, CPI, inflation tomorrow. That's a big one. And then we'll have a jobs claim tomorrow as well. Yep. So you guys know what the dots are going to be about tomorrow. We'll see if anything else crazy happens. Anyway, as always, guys, uh, if you want to get the dots delivered to your email, Sign up for Know Your Risk Radio. Just subscribe. Go to any podcast site out there, Apple, iTunes, Spotify, you name it, or just Google Know Your Risk Radio, and uh, that'll give you the daily dots for free, no paywalls, give you our our uh, Friday shows and all the interviews we do. And, and like I said, the more you subscribe, the better better guests we get, although we've had a pretty good slate, so but you should still subscribe because we can get better. Anyway, have a great evening. We'll be back tomorrow. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.